This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Martin Patelis is the CEO of Hunt to Eat, a brand that started off as a t-shirt design company, but is now coming full circle into the education space and is truly interested in recruiting new hunters into the fold by showing them essentially how to hunt to eat. It's an interesting ideology that is supported by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service survey data that says that 86% of non-hunting Americans support people that hunt that do it for food. Makes you think that the rhetoric tied to hunting to eat connecting with knowing where your food comes from and building a community around it may not be too bad of a strategy in promoting a lifestyle. Won't be All quite right. as much of that. Say that again. We're rolling. Oh, we're rolling. All right. I said I won't be a much of a hood rat with my hood down, but it's okay. You get the, you get the full bore. So tell me about the logo. I know you just did a logo change, right? Two knives. Like, yeah. a, is it a field knife and a, and, a, and a chef's knife, right? 
Yep. You got it. Yep. It's the idea really being that, um, that every, every hunter who's in kind of, if you want to call it our, our, our community, the hunt eat community, they ultimately need a chef or they need a buck knife or some sort of field knife. And then they're going to need a chef's knife because they're going to bring it home and, and, and share it with their community. So it's kind of like the two tools of the trade. You know, there's a, we, with a lot of the design work that we do, we, uh, it's always a little bit of a give and take of like how specific do you get um, versus how broad do you keep it so that you attract enough sales of the design, right? If you're like, as soon as you put like a fly fishing pole, you, you get, you got rid of all the bait chuckers. And as soon as you, you know, put a bow and arrow on it, you've gotten rid of like all the guys that just hunt with a, the gals that hunt with a gun. Um, so, uh, trying to really distill down a design to something that every hunter, every hunter, every angler, you know, anybody that consumes really anything, whether it's mushrooms or deer steak, they ultimately need a field knife and then they mm-hmm. ultimately need a chef knife. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's very much like the hunt to eat the name itself. Like it's just distilled to such a basic concept that, uh, yeah, then it just landed on the knives after a certain while. And uh, Sweet. I was excited that I did. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I've got a question yeah. that I'm going to hold after your introduction. I typically don't let anyone introduce when we just start talking. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Martin? Okay. So my name is, um, for some reason, I don't know if it's your accent or what it is. It's like on this particular podcast, I kind of want to introduce my like real name. Yeah, and Martin. Everybody my like, uh, close. So my real name is Martin Davis Putes. Oh, so I like that. I I'm, I'm, yeah. So I'm Martin Sputels. Everybody else calls me Martin. Um, it's the correct conjugation of the uh, of the name Martin um, to uh, to address me. So that's kind of what I I, uh, I gave everybody the phonetic version of that, um, so that they can say my name generally right and uh, and have a good conversation. So um, yeah, I'm the CEO, uh, founder of Hunt to Eat. We're a lifestyle apparel company now, also an education company. And, um, you know, I guess you call us a media company too. We produce a fair amount of that as well. And, uh, yeah, we're just kind of trying to be everywhere where you are if you're interested in the hunt to eat lifestyle. Yeah, I have the same issue when it comes to my name. People ask me, how do I, how do you say your last name? And Mm -hmm. if I was in South Africa, South Africa, Kruger is like Smith. Okay. Yeah. That's what South Africa. So I, my last name is Kroger. So every time somebody would go, Oh, Kruger. And I said, no, with an O Kruger with an O mm. and like, Oh, Kroger. Well here in America, you don't have it so much where you guys are at down here in the Southeast. There's a grocery chain called Kroger. Oh yeah. No, well, I'm growing up. Yeah. And, uh, so when someone says, how do you say your last name? I said, just like the supermarket Kroger. And uh, a side anecdote, when I was a PhD student here in America and I was earning nothing, I uh, went back to Australia because all my family is now immigrated to Australia. And I bought all the, the Kroger name brand stuff like bricks of coffee, chocolate, rice. <laughs> and I gifted it all to my family. And they thought it was the best gifts ever because they were all Kroger branded stuff. So... There you go. Little yeah. anecdote on the side. It is, it is funny about the commonality of names, right? So my brother and I, and a lot of folks know my brother, Giannis. Um, we, his name essentially is John and mine's Martin, right? I mean, that's as, as, as common as it gets. So 
but in Latvia, Giannis and Martinc is like number the number one name. I mean, there's like two million people in Latvia, and a million of them are named Giannis, <laughs> right? And then the other, the next step down is like they're all named Martin, essentially. So, um, yeah. Anyway, it's common, common there, not common here. Um, so when we talked about hunt to eat, I very distinctly remember you telling me that. And you started this way in this conversation. You started talking about the design and excluding people on a certain design. But you said to me in that conversation, you said, Robbie, we're more than a design company. Mm. Are you? Are you more than a t-shirt company? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, These days with, uh, with the education aspect, so that's really kind of where I'm kind of been able to go full circle now um my college education while i'm not a phd um like yourself um, <laughs> have, um but a lonely bachelor's here uh is in essentially an adventure education um and so being able to see the the need for bringing in folks into the hunting uh world into the hunting community um my education uh kind of focused there on on exactly that really just like adventure and using the, using the outdoors as a classroom, um, hunting is all of that. So, um, we've got, uh, we've got three camps on the books this spring, and then we've got a whole bunch more coming this fall. Um, and really, really aimed at first time hunters, um, and getting those folks outside. Um, yeah. And I'm just teaching them the basics or. Yeah. Kind of, um, you know, as much as we can, uh, yeah, start to finish. So um, we're, we're teamed up with a, a bunch of good landowners that have, uh, you know, they were kind of set up for success to, to have people be successful with, uh, you know, whether it's turkeys or deer or whatnot. Um, so these first time hunters are going to kill for the first time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, everything from coming in, you know, essentially everything, the next step after your hunter education course. So, which here in the States, you know, the hunter education courses highly, highly dependent on who's teaching it is like what you actually get out of it. Right. Like for me, I would argue there was very little that came learning that came out of that um, besides maybe some gun safety, um, which I had actually already knew, knew from growing up around guns, but um, yeah. So, you know, every, everything that we can pack into a four day experience. Um, Limited and, and, number of and, people, I assume. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, you're giving them that one-on-one scenario, right? Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, not necessarily always one-on-one. Um, a lot of one-on-one time, uh, certainly like deer hunting um, with mentors. Um, maybe a little bit less with some of the other things we're doing with turkey hunting and with upland hunting um, and fishing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just a lot, of, a lot of really good time to spend out in the woods, being able to ask whatever question you want and uh, just kind of digging into your mentors. Um, I like that knowledge. Yeah. So when you talked um, about the hunter education, it brought back a a terrible memory of mine in that I was in my hunter education class in Mississippi. I was, I was 24 when I arrived in the States to start a PhD, got my hunter's education at 26. So I'm sitting in a hunter's education class with 12 year olds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
within the first hour, I realized that this wasn't a hunter education class. It was more about the, the, the wildlife officer who's giving the course uh, an opportunity for him to, to showboat of all the accomplishments that, of, a, of how great a hunter he is. And then he t- starts explaining sort of bow hunting. And he says, well, when you're up in a tree and you see an animal, that distance from where you are in the tree to the animal is much shorter than it was from the ground to that animal. And I'm like, yeah, your math is wrong there because it's called a hypotenuse. And, you know, the 12 year olds in the class aren't going to know the difference between a hypotenuse. And anyway, it just flashback when you said hunter education class. I was like, Oh Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just kind of just wrapping up a lot of my field work at the time. And the guy pulled out, um, his backpack. He's like, okay, this is like everything you'd want to have in your backpack for the day. And he, I'm not kidding. He pulls out a, uh, like a full roll of duct tape, like a like big one, you know, like the one you could like hit somebody over the head and knock them out with. Um, and I was maybe just that like, was the utility of it, right? So that you could survive out there and knock something, knock something out. Maybe you could build a tent out of tape. I don't know, man. I was, I was disappointed with like the, trying, the information they were trying to send you know, if you took that information and went in the field, you'd be in a world of trouble. So anyway, there's the hunting education ha- leaves a lot to be desired. And we're going to step up and try to fill that role um, for, for the brand new hunter. And, and specifically, I think for folks who maybe look at the hunting community and go, I don't really see myself there. You know, uh, those aren't my people. It's like, cool, we'll, we'll be your people. Um, we'll make it a space that welcomes everybody. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a good time. So, yeah. so, so let me ask uh, the first deep dive question here. Yeah. And I purposely used the word kill earlier. Um, when, when you're introducing these first time hunters, are we, are we, are we talking about them killing something or are we talking about them harvesting something? Well, something's got to die if you want to eat it, right? Correct. Yeah. So I think you got to kill something to harvest it. So what is your distinction? Because you used the, the two terms in the same sentence. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, bullet goes into something, bleeds out, it's dead, right? That's killing it. Um, harvesting it is, uh, is taking it out of the woods. It's doing, doing what you ought to do with it, right? Um, different levels of harvesting. People are going to have different, ethos around how much they should harvest, um, all that stuff. But, uh, I think you get, you, you got, we're dealing with life and death here. I think there's a very, uh, it is a very important distinction that we need to be connected to that we kill things in order to eat. Doesn't matter if it's a, you know, doesn't matter if it's soybeans or if it's deer, you want to eat it, you got to kill it. Pretty simple. How do we, how do we in today's society, this is a question that I've wrestled with and I actually may drop a video this Sunday about it. How do we in today's society, today's perceptions around hunting and killing, how do we defend killing? That sounds like an, it's, it's almost shocking, right? How do we defend killing? Mm, I would probably reframe the question and not try to defend killing. 
Okay. How would you reframe it? Mm, I would talk about what kind of, like everyone's got to eat, right? Um, there's just no getting around it. Like if you want to exist on our plane, you're going to have to eat something. Um, and so like what food system do you want to be a part of? What, what's the food system look like for you that you feel proud to say, yeah, this is my food. And, and this is a privileged conversation. Don't get me wrong. There are people in our, in our community, in our world that don't have the privilege to decide what kind of food they're going to eat. They're going to like, they're sure. going to get whatever they got and eat it, you know? Sure. But if you are so privileged, um, yeah, what food system do you want to support, right? Like, where do you want, you're going to do, you're doing it one way or another. You're doing it with your dollars or you're doing it with your bow. Um, you want to support something that, um, that, you know, deals with mass produced food and uh, deals with animals that are, you know, probably not living the best life. Um, similarly, do you want to support a food system that, um, the people harvesting your food aren't living the best life and they're not taken care of and they're getting sprayed with pesticides. Like what, you know, we all exist in supporting various food systems, um, from mass market to supporting, you know, elk growing bigger on the hillside and me being able to shoot them. Um, but, uh, what's, you know, when, instead of me defending how I support my food system, I would just flip the script and say, cool. How do you support your food system? Tell me about it. What do you know about it? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. where, where'd your, where'd your dinner come from last night? No, hundred percent. You, you, you can answer that, those questions for me. I'll, then we're already down the train of like, we're having a great conversation because you're thinking about it. And if you're not thinking about it, I'm probably just not going to argue with you. <laughs> I, yeah. Like, if you, you want to press me on where I get my food, but you're not willing to have a conversation about where you get your food, right. that conversation is over. So. Yeah, it's almost the antithesis, right? It's the it's the classic argument whereby, you know, you're in a keyboard warrior type debate discussion. None of those keyboard warriors will ever admit to eating meat, but it is a very easy entry. When someone starts, you know, I've, you probably get it a lot. I get it a lot. How do we, and, and maybe this is where the whole defense of killing comes in, which is how do we defend hunting? And one step further is because killing is inherent to what we do, how do we defend killing? Because that's what we do. And I think your argument is a good one in that the first, your, and I don't know, maybe you disagree with me, but typically the first port of call is, well, what do you eat? Do you eat meat? Because mm -hmm. if you do, okay, let's stop the clock for a second and, and, and let's work out where your meat comes from. Mm -hmm. And let's just backtrack it a little bit, backtrack it a little bit and realize that what, you just, you're, what you're eating had to have died. Mm -hmm. And for it to have died, something, not necessarily someone, mm -hmm. but something had to have killed it. Mm -hmm. Okay, we make that you make that connection, well, then it's a much, as you explained, it's a much easier now digestion of this idea that we defend killing because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And listen, I'm not like people want to have a, uh, they want to make the life of a elk more important or less important than the life of a cow somehow. And they want to make both of those things probably more important than the life of a corn stalk. 
mm, sorry, not in my not in my world. Like I'm gaining sustenance from both of those things, cow, elk, or corn. Um, I I prefer it all to have a good life and then, and then have a quick death. Um, so uh, yeah, like and and you're killing that corn. You're killing the corn. I mean, the thing is living, breathing, and growing, and then it's not right. The, I, you but you really can't like, equate that, right? You can't equate a plant's life to an animal's life, right? What? Why not? Because of things like a vertebra, things like a brain, things like perception. I mean, so you could argue that the the connective tissue and soil with trees talking to one another. Why? Why is that? How? Only because we don't understand its sentient beingness. Um, does it make it less important? Um, what if corn talks to one another? You know, what, like, I don't know, man. And they scream when the harvester comes by. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't know. Um, I, you know, it's like, it's not, it's probably not a point worth arguing because I only, only to say that like, li listen, it's alive and now it's dead. So you, you yeah, can assign whatever, you, you can assign whatever value you want to that thing's life. Um, I mean, the stuff they're doing right now with like how smart octopus are. Have you seen the documentary on Netflix? It's incredible. It's incredible. And it's like, people are like, I'm never eating an octopus again. Cause it's just like, it's smarter than we are. And it's like, what, you know, I think an elk sometimes is a lot smarter than me too. You know? sure, it, sure. It, it evades me all the time. I still kill it. I still love eating it. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's a little, uh, it's, it's a little much like the, I think we've just, the, these conversations arise because people are so removed mm -hmm. from their food systems, from mm -hmm. all of it. Right. There's, and, and generally speaking, I think that we as, as humans definitely here in the United States is what I can speak to are removed from death, not just the killing of animals, but all of death. We don't pay attention to the, our old people. We don't pay attention to, even the births, you know, the birthing happening in hospitals and stuff like the, um, there's, there's for all of this life and death stuff, there's like, we have barriers um, and we're not like as in tune with it all as I think uh, probably would benefit us as a human race. So. Where do you yeah. think that this connection, well, I guess maybe I've even just answered my own question, but the disconnection is, is certainly a problem. And it's a disconnection across the board, right? This urban-rural divide. Does it get any better? I don't even know if it's urban-rural, man. I think it's. Uh, I think uh, rural folks are sticking their old people away in, in nursing homes just as much as we are in the cities, you know? I think there's something to the whole multi-generational household and seeing how, um, seeing the wisdom of old people as well as seeing the aging of old people and then the seeing the passing of it. It's such a, so has been so much of our, was it's a definitely a part. European tradition slash culture. Huh? The not having old people. No, no having like being a part of those multi-generational uh, systems. Yeah. I mean, I think I would think probably not so much. It's funny you say European. I would, I would say, these days it's probably just stronger like on the african continent and probably on the you know like the asian uh in asian cultures um, mm. is where i still see it in my travels um yeah um 
I mean, it's certainly, it just is the case here, right? Like we did not lose as many old people. We, if old people lived with their families, the whole COVID thing in the States would have been like way worse, right? right. Because the, they would have just gotten it. And whereas when we went into the first lockdown, all the old folks were by themselves, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no young people around to get them sick. So they actually survived that first, um, first bit a lot better. Um, but yeah. So when, it, so when it comes to hunt to eat, one of the things obviously is the food, right? And the, the amazingness of the food. And I think that's probably, you know, we talk, we've, we've already covered a couple of perceptions. You know, one of the biggest perceptions out there is that venison sucks, is that it's gamey and it's livery and it's, it doesn't taste good, right? Bear doesn't taste good. Deer doesn't taste good. I mean, it's just the farthest thing from the truth. I don't know. I don't like, yeah, it's a, it, I guess it is a perception. I think it's, I think the perception is dying. I think the foodie culture in the last 15 years has probably put that, you know, put that to shame a little bit. Um, you know, and yeah, like, and I get it. It's still around. Um, but even more like our ambassador team, there's, you know, folks from all, all across the country and slowly, but surely they, uh, you know, they're reaching out in their communities. And I think that with the likes of social media and stuff like that, like people get, they're like, Oh, I can make this taste good. Okay. Let's try it this way, this way, this way. And then like they're feeding it to their family and their family's going, Holy shit. (laughs) Okay. We should eat this. So. Well, things are getting easier to cook as well. Right. Like I'm not a chef. Oh my God. Right. I I suck as a chef. Same here. Like my wife. I can legit cook a venison backstrap now because of a thing called a Traeger. Like mm. I can cook it now. Like I know the you, temperature. You haven't, got, you haven't gone sous vide yet? That's the real dunking. I have it. not. I need to. It, it looks so ridiculous. Does it? it is ridiculous, right? It's so, it's so stupidly easy. Yeah. I mean, you, you marinate something, you put it in a bag, really the same bag you marinated it. You just put that bag in water, turn the thing on and leave for five hours or whatever you want and come back and, the whole thing i mean it's just the there's no gradient in the meat right anymore it's not like it's not the perfect thing in the middle and then like pretty pretty done on the outside it's just all perfection and then you sear it afterwards you pull out the packet and do a sear or something like that yeah do a 30 second sear on all sides and that's it and you just i mean because it's like you know you bite into a really good backstrap when it's been on the grill and you're like god oh, that was it's really good when i have that one perfect middle bite but now it's like you cut into the whole thing and like you have off one medallion, you know, you have four bites that are just like perfect, 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 perfect. <laughs> you know, it's like, and it really, I mean, you literally take it, put it in a bag, put it back in the water, turn the thing on. Like, I mean, and you can mess it up where mess it up where you're like, as long as you cook it enough, it won't overcook. Right. So you can leave it in there for, you're like, oh, I meant to come home at three and it went for another three hours and I cooked it for six hours. It's like, doesn't matter. Pull it out. Same temperature, it. right? Just stays at the same temperature. Yeah. Yeah. There's some funny things happening at like a really long, if you took that steak and left it for like 24 hours, it does some funny things. Um, but really you can, it's pretty hard to mess up. So, it's amazing yeah. that maybe that, you know, the idea, the perception that game meat sucks with the technologies that are now available to people like you and me that can't cook 
is now mm-hmm. introducing that that game fair to you know like my kids that's you know my that's one of the most important things to me when i put the meat down in front of them i say where'd that meat come from oh daddy you killed it okay and they love mm-hmm. it they taste it like my my kids with wild pig ribs they make a bone Ooh. graveyard right and i've yeah. got that down pat like i have got that down pat that was good yeah it's crazy um, shanks man i think shanks are like the we should make a t-shirt for shanks these days sometimes because you know shanks used to always be like one people either cut them off and like threw them away or they fed them to the dogs or they just they're ultimately they just ground them right they just like all the shank meat got ground um but man a whole, like a whole front shoulder off a deer really i think or just you can do it with a bunch of shanks you throw that thing in an instapot for six seven hours with a bunch of just like beer some sugar some garlic some onions and it's you have the best carnitas you've ever had like the best pulled meat you've ever had for tacos or you know sliders or whatever and it's like you didn't really do anything but just like stick it all in there and turn it on come back six hours later and it's ridiculously good all pulls apart like yeah we stick a pork leg in there like a front shoulder of a wild pig yeah. Put your, your barbecue seasoning on it and a, and just a can of pineapple juice. Drop it, oh. close it, come back, as you say, eight hours later. You remove yeah. the bones. It is magnificent. Yeah. I think the thing we figured out with wild game cooking that really has changed a lot is that the connective tissue, when cooked long enough, disintegrates and makes things taste better. But it has to be cooked long enough, right? Like you do that, you do what I just described with the shanks and you do it for four hours and like try to eat it and it's horrible. Like you, you're not you're not there yet, right? It really is the time of cooking. You just have to cook it for a really long time to break down that connective tissue. But once you do, it's not gamey. It's just delicious. So, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm excited for the rest of the year. We've got some things cooking to really kind of show off the food stuff a little bit more. Um, so it's going to be fun. Um, we've already been doing a bunch more video work this year um, with all of our recipes and different contributors. So um, we're just going to keep knocking that stuff out and, and, and sharing that stuff. Um, we're still waiting for our This Is My Why hunt to eat. I know. You know that. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. No, no, it's all good. I was laughing is- with Paul about it. <laughs> Trying to trying to wrangle cats sometimes with the team to get that stuff done. I apologize for that. No, yeah. you don't have to apologize at all, man. We'll get them. We'll slowly get them. Yeah, yeah. So where is Hunt to Eat in three years' time, five years' time? Boy, um, I mean, I think we're, uh, I think we're, I think we're leading. I think we're leading the conversation of uh what uh hunting and i mean really the like the hunt to eat i mean that just that that lifestyle i think we're 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 leading that conversation i think we're also leading the conversation just as thought leaders um we've got we've built an amazing community of folks who are highly intelligent um and kind of can talk about the nuance of things and uh you know, whether it's talking to the Biden administration about the 30 for 30 ideas, whether it's tackling, you know, having hunters uh, have a seat at the table for climate change conversations, um, just conservation in the United States in general. 
I think that uh, I think we're going to have somebody at the table at all those conversations. So, um, yeah, and we'll be talking about it at a as as big of a level, as big of a um, stage as I think as we can get. I think we'll be there, whether it's uh, you know movies on Netflix and and Amazon Prime and some other TV shows and stuff like that. We've got we've got stuff coming down the train here that's gonna going to take everything we do already and just kind of put it on all those platforms so fantastic fantastic yeah. and it's interesting you, you say the movement of hunt to eat and and really the idea the concept that people hunt to eat when you look at surveys fish and wildlife surveys of people's approval of why we hunt the approval of why i am okay with someone hunting the approval rating is in, if I remember correctly, is in like the 86% range for people who hunt to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hunt for food. It's a, so it's a very valid ideology for the lifestyle that we lead. Yeah, it is. I think there's, you know, hunt to eat has three, like uh, three company pillars that we, we talk about a lot. It's in our, it's like the tagline of hunt to eat, which is uh, community, real food and conservation. And uh, I think when you break down those, uh, those conversations and you're, you talk to people about the importance of their community to them, whatever that looks like. Um, and, and not only community, but really all, all three of those things, like what's your relationship to community? What's your relationship to your food, your food systems? And what's your relationship, if, if not to conservation, then to like wild places and wild things? Why are all of those important to you? Ultimately, you can be me and you, right? And like give similar answers, right? Like um, it's, it's the hunting part. It's the keeping wild animals on the landscape. Um, you know, it's the camaraderie, whatever. Like we touch on all three of those things pretty easily. Ultimately, I think that everybody touches when I say everybody, I mean all of humanity touches on those three things. Those three concepts of community, real food, and wildness, if you want to call it that, maybe not mm-hmm. conservation, but um, there's not a single person on this planet who, if you gave them more of that, a deeper relationship with all, any one of those three things, they'd be a better human for it. So <clears throat> you don't have to necessarily agree with me that we're going to go kill the same thing in the woods. And that's how we're going to talk about real food. But I want you to have a relationship to your food. I want you to know. It might even be just knowing the checkout clerk at the grocery store. Knowing, you know, Cindy who's at the meat counter and saying hey to her every day. You might learn something about that pork shoulder that she just chopped up into some ribs and gave to you. Having a relationship with your food is a good thing. Um, having a relationship with that food puts you in better community with Cindy, who's standing behind, who's the butcher, right? All of that is like, that's just good living. And everyone's better off for it. So I think hunt to eat, yes, we have like, we have a specific kind of connotation to that, but ultimately community, real food and conservation, everybody can get behind that. I love it. I don't think you can, I don't think you can end a podcast in a better way. I really like that ideology. I really do. I like the synergy between the three of them. And as you said, it's, it's almost like 
I'll flip it a little bit. It's almost the three things that people crave. Community, I I, I, connection I to food, my idea. and wildness. Yeah, I can't say it's my idea, man. I had a conversation with a researcher about four years ago, and we had, he broke it down for me. International researcher that did research all across the globe. He essentially told me those three things, and I said, that was a brilliant idea for an ideology. That was a brilliant way to just carry ourselves forward, you know, in the world where we're disconnected from thanks to technology in certain instances, you know, like we're disconnected from a lot of those things. And it's like, what do people want? They want all three of those things. We'll give it to them in a very specific way over here with my business. But uh, ultimately, I think we can, we can look for that stuff for all of us, you know, in, in all that we do. I think anybody should take that, I, those ideas and carry them forward in whatever they do and they'll probably be better off for it. So, yeah. Sounds good. Well, uh, why don't we end it off like everyone typically does? Where do they find you? Yada, mm. yada, yada, yada. Well, I'm over, I'm never mind. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. You can find me on Instagram. I'm on uh, Martin <laughs> underscore Patelis. Um, you can find the business at, at hunt to eat. Um, really on the internet anywhere hunt to eat will get you to to us and what we're up to and um, yeah come check us out if you are looking for a cool camp to attend to learn some new skills um, in the woods come check out the hunt to eat camps this spring I will say our Oklahoma camp and uh, our Oklahoma turkey camp is going to be amazing you shoot a turkey you might have opportunity to go upland hunting as well as fishing for huge paddlefish Uh, wow yeah so it's a, it's a kind of a threefer trip. Um, it's going to be fantastic in a gorgeous place in Oklahoma too. You're so, going to be doing that obviously but, shortly, right? Because turkey season, is it a yeah. fall turkey hunt or a spring turkey hunt? It's spring turkey hunt. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So four days, uh, if you, you know, and it's like, if you get, if you're not into turkey hunting or you shoot one the first day, you could go check out shooting pheasants, uh, hunting pheasants over a dog or go spoonbill uh, fishing. Yeah. That's a giant old, big old fish. My gosh. So, Yeah. I may have to trip. sign up myself. I know that's what a lot of other hunters I know have already said. They're like, hey, that sounds like a pretty good trip for anybody. I'm like, well, yes. We'll take anybody, but we prefer we prefer the newbies. We want to welcome them with open arms. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Martin, always cool. a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And uh, you keep doing it. what you do, brother. Okay, will do. Cheers, mate. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.